One was, what does this mean? And this is consistent with a lot of what God does in the Bible. This is the same kind of response we see throughout. When God asked Ezekiel to, if these bones could live, he's like, well, you know, Lord, I don't know. <laughs> this is what people often has to have to ask. There's a real sense in which no matter what God does, whether he raises the dead or he causes people to do other normally impossible things, we still need some explanation. What does this mean? How do we process this? Where does it fit with everything else that we know about the world? But the second response is a little less polished. They're drunk. They're out of their mind. And you might not agree with this. I hope you don't. But you still have to appreciate a little bit the brutal honesty of it. And truth be told, the responses to Christianity haven't changed a whole lot over the years. These are the questions we still get. What does it all mean? Why do Christians act the way they do and claim the things they claim? Or there are the less guarded responses. They're nuts. They're out of their minds. I was working at a restaurant during seminary, and I thought I had built up a pretty decent rapport with my coworkers. As a seminary student, it's always like you have to work a little bit harder to make people think you're normal. I thought I had done this. And one time I built up the courage to invite a guy to church with me. And I tried to act laid back like it was asking any other normal question. You want to go have a beer? You want to go to church with me? Um, And I figured what's the worst he could answer? Uh, Maybe, you know, brush it off. No, that's okay. (laughs) Instead, I said, hey, man, you want to go to church with me sometime? And it was, no. (laughs) And then just walked off very quickly and not only did he say no, but he told all of our coworkers that I had invited him to church as if I had invited him to like see a human sacrifice or something. Can you believe he had asked me to come to church? <clears throat> One musical artist I enjoy is a guy named Jason Isbell. His lyrics are rich, sometimes a little dark. I, I like that a little bit. And they're not always kid-friendly. Warning. But on faith, he he sounds like one of these critics in this passage. So in one of his songs, he says, the church bells ring for those who are easy to please. It's essentially the same accusation as our passage. You're drunk. You're outside of your mind. Disillusioned. How could you believe this? These have been the criticisms from the very start. Either it's unclear what it all means, or Christians believe absurdities. And Luke, the author of this story, he clearly isn't afraid of these criticisms, is he? That's why he mentions them straight up. This is what people were saying. And despite all the objections, all Christians, every church draws their origins from this passage. You can't get away from it. If you're a part of a Christian church, this is where you get your beginnings. It's the cataclysmic moment that launched the church in the way the first shot of a battle rings out and pierces a silence and the future battles are sort of like reverberations of that initial shot. All of us as Church of the Lamb, we are like the ripples of this effect, of the Spirit who continues to pour Himself out like He did on that first Pentecost. But how do Christians believe this audacious story? 
I'm going to make two points, and we're going to move quickly this morning. First, we believe this because it fits within the larger story. That is the true story of the world. You see, the Bible always conveys heaven and earth as overlapping with God active in the world in these very mysterious and unexpected ways, ways that human beings can never control. So in the beginning of the book of Genesis, God's Spirit is working in creation to bring order out of chaos. He's hovering over the waters, and He's bringing order into the creation. And it's God's own breath. By the way, when it says breath in the Old Testament, uh, this is the same word for spirit. So in Ezekiel, it's the same way. Breath is spirit. And it's God's own breath that is breathed into the first humans that gives them their animating and life-giving powers. It's God's breath that makes humans alive. And the stories in those first chapters of Genesis, those stories themselves are deep mysteries in some ways. There are some questions that we don't have the answers to. But one thing is very clear in these stories. Without God's Spirit, there's an emptiness and a lifelessness to humanity. Humans can't live. We're not animated. And this is the thrust of the passage that Leah read to us from Ezekiel 2. God's Spirit, the animating, life-giving force that brings people back from the dead. We need the Spirit to be who we're made to be. And it's within this larger story that Acts 2 finds its place and makes sense. People who are gathered in a room, from all appearances, they're just waiting. But these are the people who had believed in Jesus. These are the people who believed that Jesus was the one who would finally make all the sadness of the world come untrue. Finally. Of course, he was shockingly killed, more shockingly raised from the dead, and maybe even more shockingly, he was ascended into heaven, taken up into heaven. But before he did that, Jesus told them, I'm going to send you my spirit to help you carry out the work that I've started. As strange as all this sounds, it fits perfectly within this story. The spirit is the power of God who gives us true life. And without the Spirit, we cannot be or do who we're made to be and do. With the Spirit, we can be and do more than we ever thought we could. He's a life-giving force for humanity. Now, there's another sense in which the Spirit is central to the story of our world and to who we're supposed to be as human beings. All of us here. So you see, Pentecost in the Jewish calendar was this agricultural festival. And it came 50 days after the celebration of Passover. This is where this is what Pentecost means, 50. Now, Passover was when Jews celebrated God having rescued them out of slavery in Egypt through the Passover lamb. Then, 50 days after God delivered them from Egypt, he gave them the law. And the law was to be the way of life by which they could keep God's promises, by which they could walk in God's ways, and they could be the light to the nations that God intended them to be. They could lead the nations to God. So here are Jesus' disciples, gathered together 50 days after Passover, 
50 days after Jesus became the Passover lamb to rescue them from slavery to sin and evil. Jesus has given them this enormous task of carrying on His work, of obeying Him and walking in His ways before the nations. How are they going to do this? How are they going to fulfill Jesus' commands, this task that He's given them? And then here comes the power, rushing in, filling a room and filling each one of them with this fresh strength and gifts to carry out His work. Haven't you ever been filled with adrenaline before, even if it was for a short moment, to carry out some task that you weren't sure that you could do it? This is what the power of the Spirit was like, except there wasn't the same letdown on the, on the other side. They were continually sustained with the power of the Spirit to, to do the task that Jesus had called them to do. The Spirit is the energy, this constant supply of strength by which they do what Jesus commanded. So do you have God's Spirit in you? Do you feel like you have this outside strength that has filled you up to do things that you couldn't normally do? Do you have the strength and willpower to love God, to obey Him and serve Him? Or, let's ask it this way, have you quenched the Spirit through continual resistance? Through a desire to do your own way? It's entirely possible to do this. And if you don't have the Spirit, you will live this very diminished life. You will not be who you're made to be. But even if you have quenched the Spirit, that doesn't have to be forever. You can have God's Spirit. God longs to give His Spirit to those who ask Him. So all you have to do is ask Him, beg Him to give you His Spirit. This is the gift He loves to give. Now how do Christians believe this? This audacious story of this outside force rushing into the world and filling us with a new strength. Because it fits within the story, this true story of the world. But there's a second reason. We believe it because we see it. And here's what I mean. All people really are becoming one. All people really are becoming one. Let let me explain this. So there's a story in the Bible way back in the first book, the book of Genesis, chapter 11. It's this other mysterious episode in the early days of human history. And humans are united by a common language, and this common language enables them to build a city together with this tower that reaches up into heaven. We don't know exactly why the humans are trying to do this. We don't know the goal of this tower that's reaching up into heaven. But the humans do say that they're trying to make a name for themselves. They're just these clues about what they're trying to do. And they say they're trying to make a name for themselves. Whatever exactly is their goal, what's clear is they're doing it to seek pride, glory, and self-sufficiency independence from God. It could be that they're building this tower into heaven so that they might be able to control the heavens 
and get power over whatever God it is that they believe is there. And God sees this going on, and in order to limit, to mitigate against this prideful work of humans, God confuses their language. And they're no longer able to communicate, so they're forced to abandon their own godlike project. They can't fulfill it. They can't carry it out. The story in Acts 2 is told as a reversal of that judgment. A direct reversal of it. People are suddenly able to understand each other again. This is why Luke gives all those place names that Nancy mentioned so well. Thank you. It's as if for his readers, they're supposed to be able to imagine in their mind Google Maps with pins dropped in all these places to show the far-reaching impact of this first announcement of the Gospel. This first appearance of the Spirit. It's as if now, because of Jesus and His Spirit, people can be united by a common language and they don't have to succumb to the arrogance of it. In fact, there's a clue in this story as to how humans actually become united together. How the whole world becomes one family. Notice, the miracle isn't that everyone can all of a sudden hear the same language. Did you notice that? It's not as if everyone all of a sudden heard the speakers in the king's English or something like that, right? No, the emphasis is that everyone is able to hear in their own language. Did you notice that? Several times the the, the passage tells us this. We're hearing in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We're dealing here with the God who became a man who became like us to help us understand Him. He came down to us. He accommodated Himself to us in some way so that we could understand who God is. So even as He sends us by His Spirit to be His messengers, to share the news of His work with others, our job is to ask the Spirit that He would help us to make the gospel clear to those to whom we're speaking. That we might be able to speak their language in some way and meet their needs. As God has done with us, we're to serve others in such a way that the gospel might become clear to them. And this is how people become one. When at least one side chooses to serve the other with the good news of Jesus. When one side says, you know what? The burden is on me. It's my job to humble myself and go to them and translate for them the love of God. The burden of responsibility is always on us. Those of us who are called to serve. And sadly, this hasn't been the logic used in a lot of Christian missions through the years. Instead, a lot of Christian missions has been going to another culture and trying to make that culture conform to the ones who go there. There's a man named Laman Sane. He is an African Christian. He's a former Muslim and a professor of world Christianity. He says that because of Pentecost... This day, first moment of the church, even to this day, to the present, Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion in the world. 
Because while some faiths, and he speaks specifically of his own native faith of Islam, some faiths might try to conform a culture in terms of laws, dress, worship. Christianity transforms a culture, but retains the goodness of that culture, the things that make that culture unique. So even though there is such a thing as normative Christian behavior, there's no normative Christian culture. We don't represent Christianity better than African Christians, Asian Christians, or urban Christians, and vice versa. The church is the first in the true United Nations where all people can relate to each other in love. And all are truly equal before God. Let me ask you, have you ever been around a Christian from an entirely different culture, even in different continents? This is one of the most surprising and precious gifts of God. And I think only Christians can understand this. Because despite vast differences, there is a deeper and more profound commonality than there is difference. It's as if your heart has been rewired in the same way. And you know the same love. This is what we mean when we say that the waters of baptism are thicker than the blood and family ties. Water is thicker than blood. Because God is making us one. We're beginning to see it. A lot of you have heard this story. I love to tell it. I'm going to tell it again right now. One of our small groups several years ago, John had just come back. John Hay had just come back from France. And he decided to bring escargot for the group. And Rick was there. I'm, I'm sorry, Rick. And Rick, the last thing he wanted to eat was escargot. So Rick had brought Bud Light for the small group. And I asked Rick as he was going to, like, if he would dip his snails in the Bud Light, if he would, you know, how, if these would go together. We were joking about it. And then at one point in the night, I see Rick is trying escargot, and John is drinking one of the Bud Lights. And I thought, where else does this happen? Where else does this happen? This is Elton. That's right. Thank you. Unusual, yes. Love, yes. Absolutely. Marriages where people can forgive each other, where their hearts become soft to each other because of the love of God. Because one person recognizes that I am called to serve this person in Christ, even if that means a lot of forgiveness and grace. People who would not normally gather together, but they do because of Jesus. Cultures entirely separated from each other, but made one because of Jesus. You see, God really is making us one. He's gathering us all under the banner of King Jesus. And this is how we know. This is how Christians can believe this. Because we see it. How do we believe in this divine force that comes rushing into our world and fills us with His power? 
that enables us to become who we're made to be because this fits within the true story of the world. Without God's Spirit, we are lifeless and diminished. So are you full of the Spirit? Is our church full of the Spirit? Will you pray that it will be? That the power of God's Spirit will be more and more palpable among us? And we believe it because we felt it. We've seen it. We see God's Spirit joining people here who otherwise would not be together. This is how we can believe this story. Now to close, will you join with me? Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.